0: Well, we're glad you're here. Uh, this is the first week of a six-week series on the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, we're going to take—if all goes well—we're going to take uh, two weeks per chapter, and even at that, it's a it's a jam-packed uh, three chapters that we're going to look at. Uh, but that's our goal. That's what we're going to try to do. And so, uh, I'm glad you're here. I hope you enjoy it. I've been studying it for months now, and. I'm ready to quit studying it and start teaching it and talking about it, and so uh, that's what we're going to do. So let me pray for us, and then we'll get started tonight. Father, we do thank you for this evening. Thank you for the privilege of coming together as men and being able to study the Word of God together. First of all, I thank you that you make it possible for us to even have the Word of God, that it's, it's something that uh, was done centuries ago, and we still have it. And it's still applicable, it's still alive, it's still life-changing, and we are grateful, Father. And we're we're grateful that we can, in this country, still come and study it and worship together and pray together without fear, and uh, we don't want to take that for granted. Father, it's my prayer tonight that you would speak to us through this passage as we dig into it, that you would open our eyes, that you would help us to see it in a whole new light, and that, Father, we would uh, bring a, a new set of eyes to Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, as we listen to the words of Jesus. And we pray all this in His name. Amen. All right, so we're going to take a look at the Sermon on the Mount. Um, The way I want to preface this tonight is um, most of us are familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. We've read it, probably studied it, heard sermons about it. Uh, Very few times have I ever heard the Sermon on the Mount... Um, preached, you know, in its entirety. Uh, I've heard it covered as part of maybe preaching through the book of Matthew, but just to take the Sermon on the Mountain and just unpack it, um, I've never heard that done. I've never been a part of that. And so for me, it's been really fun to just go to these three chapters in Matthew and look at this one sermon given by Jesus. It's the longest... uh, message that we have recorded in the New Testament by Jesus, and yet we don't spend a whole lot of time looking at it, at least in my opinion. And so, one of the things that I want to make sure that doesn't happen as we unpack these chapters is that I want you, as best as you can, to put everything you know about the Sermon on the Mount, or everything you think you know about the Sermon on the Mount, on the back burner. And I want you to come tonight with, with uh, an attitude that you're a, you're a first century Jew and you're going to hear this message for the very first time because in reality that's exactly what happened this is a message that Jesus gave and he had an audience and that audience heard him say this stuff for the very first time they were predominantly if not entirely Jews and we'll see that they were made up of a lot of different types of Jews or groups of Jews and yet They're hearing him say these words, and I want you to start thinking about if I had been in the crowd that day, how would I have heard these words? So, in other words, forget the fact that you're a believer, forget the fact that you're a Christian, forget about the crucifixion, forget about the resurrection, the ascension, forget about all of that because none of it's happened. And you're sitting on that hillside, you're hearing this guy named Jesus from Nazareth give a message. And I, I, on Tuesday night, I taught this out at the West Campus and I actually showed a video and I, I can't show it tonight because we're filming this and we don't have permission to show it, but I showed uh, a portion of the movie Life of Brian by Monty Python. And if you've ever watched that movie, um, there's a portion um, where it's the Sermon on the Mount. And it shows Jesus on the hillside, and Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount. The camera pans back, and there's this crowd. And at the back of the crowd is this group of people trying to hear what he said. And they can't understand him. And so when he says, blessed are the peacemakers, they think he said, blessed are the cheesemakers. Because it's such a distance to where he is. And they get into an argument or a fight. But if you think about it, guys, that's exactly what this would have been like. This would have been one man standing on a hillside speaking to a crowd of people and most of them so far away they can't even hear what he has to say. And there are many who believe that it was kind of like the telephone game where the first group would hear it and they'd pass it down to the next group and they'd get to the back of the crowd and probably like the telephone game, it was misunderstood by the time it got to the back of the crowd. But that's the scene we're going to deal with as we unpack this. And just so you have an idea of what um, the area where he gave this message looked like, this is actually the area where he gave the Sermon on the Mount. It's on the north end of the Sea of Galilee. And if you're like me, your picture of the Sea of Galilee or anything in Israel is brown. You know, if you look in the back of your Bible, everything in the back of your Bible is brown. All the maps are brown. That's why I never wanted to go to the Holy Land because I thought, good grief, I might as well just go to the desert. But this is not what it looks like. This is the Sea of Galilee. This is the area, the the hillside, where they think he gave his talk. And more than likely, Jesus stood on the top of this hill. It wasn't really a mountain. And he spoke, and everybody faced him, and his view was the sea. And it kind of acted as an amphitheater. So that's the kind of the setting that he's dealing with. The subhead of this whole talk for the next six weeks is this. It's Christ's counterculture Revolution, and why that's important to me is that I think what's happened to the Sermon on the Mount is we've emasculated it. We've taken this talk by Jesus and we've turned it into something that has no bite, it has no power, it has no emphasis to it anymore. It's just a, it's a talk. It's like a TED talk. You know, he just gave a TED talk. He had his PowerPoint, and he did his thing, and everybody just walked away. Or we've turned it into just a a nice moral lesson on life. But my goal is to get you to understand that it was revolutionary the day he said it, and it's just as revolutionary today. Nothing's changed except for the fact that we've lost sight of the radical nature of what he was calling these people to. And I want us to hear it, and I want us to apply it to our lives. So everything he says as he stands on that hillside is counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense. And again, if you can get in the sandals of a first century Jew and you're hearing him say these things, and probably the vast majority of the people in the crowd were peasants, and they're listening to this rabbi speak, and and, and they're not quite understanding exactly what he's saying. It's counterintuitive. It goes against everything they have been taught as Jews. And the religious leaders who are there, they're always there. It definitely goes against everything they believed and everything they taught, and so everything he says is radical in nature, and it's revolutionary. And you're going to see as we work our way through these three chapters, by the time he's done, the people in the crowd are going to really be blown away at at this guy, the way he speaks, his authority. The religious leaders are going to be blown away by how much they hate him. And how much they want to get rid of him. And this is really where the intensity of the battle between Jesus and the religious leaders begins. Is at this sermon. Okay, so it's revolutionary in nature. Now, to to set it up, you can't study these three chapters without taking a look at the, the whole book. So very briefly, what I want to help us understand is that the key theme of the book of Matthew is the kingdom of heaven. It's all throughout the book of Matthew. It's also the key theme of the Sermon on the Mount. It's sometimes the kingdom of heaven, sometimes the kingdom of God. I believe those are two mutually, um, they're synonymous, they're not two different things. So he's talking about the kingdom of heaven, and, and that message permeates the book of Matthew. So if you start at Matthew 1, verse 1, and you work your way through, you're going to see that the kingdom and kingship is a part of the book of Matthew, and it's definitely a part of the Sermon on the Mount. So, you have this idea of the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. He's going to talk about the kingdom of earth. And he's also going to begin to reveal himself as a king. Okay? And that's going to be really important to understanding what's going on. So, if you go to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it's that genealogy that you skip when you're reading through the Bible and you get to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, you just skip the entire genealogy because you get tired of the bagats, right? So-and-so begat so-and-so, and and -and so-and-so, who cares? Well, everything's in there for a reason, and it's there for a reason because it tells us that it's a genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And son of David, David being who? The king of Israel. And that's essential. It tells us from the get-go, Matthew is letting us know that Jesus is a descendant, a legal blood descendant of the king David. And so he has every right to the throne. You skip down to the next verses, five and six. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. So you have this lineage of Jesus coming from who? The king. King David. It's been prophesied, it's been told about, and here he comes, and then it ends in verse 16, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ, Messiah. That's the Greek term for Messiah. So, chapter 1, verse 1, you start moving your way through the book of Matthew, and it's all about the coming of the king, okay? And that's important. Because it tells us in verses 20 and 23, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. This is the angel speaking to Joseph. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So not only is he a son of David, he's the son of God. He's God Incarnate, He's God in human flesh. So again, you got to get that through your head because when we start this Sermon on the Mount and he stands in front of those people, he's not simply standing there as a rabbi or a teacher. And he's also not just standing there as a worker of miracles. He is the legitimate heir to the throne and he is the Son of God, God in the flesh. And so what he says, if that's true, and I believe it to be true, Everything he says has authority. It's not just suggestions. It's not just a TED Talk. It's not just, hey, here's some ideas about how you might live a better life. This is the Son of God, the descendant of David, the next king of Israel, speaking to the people of Israel about life in the kingdom. That's what it's all about. So he's a descendant and also the Son of God. Now, here's the situation going on as we get ready to open up the passage. Herod is the king. You know the story of Herod. Herod's on the throne uh, when Jesus comes along as a baby, and Herod is not even a Jew. He's the king of the Jews, but he's not a Jew. He's an Edomite. He is a vassal. He's a puppet of Rome. He was placed there by Rome, and the Jews cannot stand him. And if you've read the story of the birth of Christ and all that happens, you know why they can't stand him. He's vicious, he's mean, and he is not, as far as they're concerned, he's not even a Jew and yet he calls himself the king of the Jews. So again, what do you got? You've got the descendant of David, the king, the legitimate heir to the throne, and there's an imposter, opposer, sitting on the throne acting like he's the king of Israel, but he's not. Who is? Jesus is. And we know from the story in chapter 2 of Jesus' birth that those wise men come from an eastern country, they come to find the king of the Jews because they've seen and heard of the prophecy, and they show up and they say, where is the newborn king of the Jews? Even they know that there's a king of the Jews coming. We saw a star as it rose and we have come to worship him, and King Herod is blown away by this news. What do you mean the king of the Jews? I'm the king of the Jews. Tell me about this king of the Jews. Where can I find this king of the Jews? Now, why did he want the king of the Jews? He wanted to kill this king of the Jews because he didn't want any competition. And that's exactly what he does. He kills all the, the male children in an attempt to get rid of this king of the Jews. So you already see this thing going on. Of uh, There's two kingdoms that are going to be all throughout this thing. The kingdom of this earth, which Herod represents, and the kingdom of heaven, which Jesus represents. And then along comes John the Baptist, and he starts preaching. And what does he preach? He's the last prophet, and he has one last thing to say to the people of Israel. Behold, the king is here. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's heralding the coming of the Messiah, the king, Jesus, the son of David, the son of God. And that's his message. Repent. And he's the guy that would baptize Jesus and then Jesus would pick up the mantle and he would pro- proclaim the very same message in the early days of his ministry. He would say in Matthew chapter four, from that time, Jesus began preach, to preach saying, repent for what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, e- even then, as he walked around saying this, and as John said it, the people had a hard time. Well, okay, what, what does that even mean? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. They weren't expecting a kingdom of heaven. They were expecting a kingdom of earth, a a, a new king, another David. And and so this this whole message was a little odd for them to understand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But Jesus is preaching it. And it tells us in verse 23 of chapter 4, and this sets up chapter 5 for us He, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Now, here's the deal. We all know what the gospel is, right? It's the good news of Jesus Christ. It's faith in Christ and Christ alone. But what's really interesting about Matthew in, in the Sermon on the Mount is they, they put together and they're inseparable the gospel and the kingdom of heaven. You can't have one without the other. It's the gospel of the kingdom. Whose kingdom? Christ's kingdom. See, guys, we we weren't just saved to live on this earth, and the kingdom is here, and everything we enjoy here is the kingdom. Now, I do believe we live and exist as part of the kingdom of heaven, but only partial, in a partial state, because we don't yet, we've not yet seen the fulfillment of the kingdom. Christ is not sitting on the throne of David. He one day will. He's in heaven right now. He's going to return. And so this idea that the gospel and the kingdom go hand in hand, our kingdom is still to come. It's not here and now yet. And so, again, kingdom of this earth, kingdom of heaven, two things in conflict. So here's here's what I want to do, again, to set it up. We're going to to hear mentioned in chapter five that he calls his disciples or he speaks to his disciples. Who's he talking about? Well, as far as I can tell from studying the book of Matthew, there's only four men who are present at this Sermon on the Mount, four disciples, because according to the book of Matthew, from chapter one to chapter four, he's only called Simon, Andrew, James, and John, two sets of brothers. So at the Sermon on the Mount, we have four of the disciples Okay, that's all we've got. But we also know that he's attracting a huge crowd because we saw that in verses 23 to 25. It says, he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He's healing every disease, every affliction among the people. So his fame spread, right? Now, if there was somebody who came to Fort Worth, Texas, who legitimately was healing people, going to the hospital, raising people up from cancer, and people were growing limbs, and people who were blind could see... His fame would spread throughout this community. And that's exactly what's happening here. People are starting to find out. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, up in the north. They brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures, paralytics, and he healed them. And people are blown away. This is incredible. And so great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem in the the south and Judea in the south and from beyond the Jordan. And so he's basically giving you a geography lesson and he's saying they're coming from everywhere. Why? Because he heals. It doesn't mention anything about his teaching. It's all about the miracles. They're enamored with this guy. They are coming to him like moths to a flame. And so we know by the end of chapter 4, he's getting a reputation, he's drawing a crowd, and they all show up at this hillside. Now it's called the Sermon on the Mount, and that comes from um, Augustine of Hippo, who uh, coined that phrase, and I have a problem with two, two aspects of that, is it's, number one, it's not a mountain, and number two, it's really not a sermon, at least a classical 21st century modern sermon. It doesn't have three points and a prayer and a poem. And, you know, it's, it's more a talk. It's just a talk. It's, it's, it's a bunch of sayings that he gave these people. They are connected, but it's not a classical sermon as we would see it. So it's more of a talk. But it says in verse 1 of chapter 5, seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, here's where we get kind of weirded out sometimes when you start reading the different commentators because... Um, They look at this and they say, well, who are his disciples? And we're going to unpack that in a second. But it would be real easy to see this and go, well, it's talking about his disciples, the 12 disciples. Well, we already know that there's only four of them there. And it says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. I don't think it means that just the four people came to him, the four disciples, Simon, Andrew, James, and John. I think. They were were called to him. They probably sat in close proximity to him. But so did everybody else. Because what do we know from all the other gospels? Every time there was a crowd, they couldn't keep away from him. They followed him everywhere. They would follow him in boats. They would go everywhere they could go to see this guy. And so there is a crowd there. And that crowd contains the four disciples. It contains Jewish peasants. We know it's going to contain what? All kinds of sick people. Why? Because they're there to get healed. They've heard the rumor. So you got paralytics, you got blind people, you got crippled people, you got all kinds of people, possessed people. Now, I don't think the possessed people came of their own accord. From what we can read about possessed people, they don't normally want to go to Jesus because they're under possession. And demons don't want to go where Jesus is. But I think people probably brought them under duress. But that crowd has all kinds of people in it. And, and last but certainly not least are the religious leaders. Everywhere Jesus showed up, they showed up. Why? Because they were enamored with him? No, because he was a threat. They were worried. And if they were worried before he preached this message, they're going to be really worried by the time he's done. Because he's going to say some things that really rock their boat. Well, what is this message? Well, let's read through it real quickly. We're going to just look at the first nine verses. It says, He opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying... Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, again, you're a first century Jew standing in the crowd, sitting in the crowd, and you hear this, and what goes through your mind? Is he nuts? Is he crazy? None of this makes sense. Now, the blessed part makes sense. They got that. They they knew what it meant to be blessed because they were Hebrews, and they knew their Old Testament. They knew about the, the blessings of God and the cursings of God. And so the idea of being blessed, but they didn't think of blessings being tied to any of these things. And so already, and why Jesus started this way, I don't have a clue. Why did he start with the Beatitudes? I don't know. But he certainly got their attention. Because they wanted to be blessed, but they didn't know it was going to come this way. Through mourning, through meekness, through suffering. So the the key thing we got to look for tonight is what is it he's teaching in these verses? What is the message Jesus is teaching? The second thing is, who's he teaching it to? And this is another area where it gets really interesting as you study the different commentators because over the centuries, people have debated this left and right that, okay, what he's saying is basically impossible, okay? And it is. And it's going to get more impossible the further we get into these three chapters. So everything he's saying is impossible, and so he's not talking to anybody that's in the crowd. He's talking to us, Christians. Well, wait a minute then why did he bother? Why did he call his disciples and these people around him and tell them all this if it didn't apply in any way? Is it impossible? Yes. Well, who's he talking to? What's the point if he's not talking to them and he's talking to us? I just don't get the logic behind that. So let's look at the who. And to me, this is probably the most important thing for understanding this passage. Is he speaking to Christians? In other words, was Jesus just prophetically speaking, and it's a message these people got to hear, but it didn't apply to them, because they weren't Christians, and it just applies to us, post-cross. Well, the answer is yes, obviously. It does apply to us, but it doesn't just apply to us. In other words, it wasn't something they heard, and it didn't apply to them, and they just walked away, and it didn't matter anyway. It applied to both in a different way and hopefully you'll see that as we move along because here's the question you have to ask yourself if he's speaking to Christians there's not a single Christian in the crowd the day he gave this talk not one there's four disciples they are not Christians they are followers of Christ and it just began they don't even know fully who this guy is yet he's a rabbi He called them. These are four fishermen, two brothers. They were both fishing. And he said, "Into both groups, he said, follow me and I'll make your fishers a man. Okay. And they followed him. That's all he told them. And they're at this thing and he starts talking all this stuff. And they're sitting there thinking, what have we joined up with? Who is this guy? We don't even get what he's saying. So there's no Christians because this is prior... To the cross. It's prior to the resurrection. It's prior to the ascension. So he's got four, four disciples and a whole bunch of followers who are there for a whole lot of different reasons. So what's the point? Is he just talking to us or is he talking to them? I truly believe that Jesus has a point, a method to his madness. The reason he gave this message to this crowd made up of people who were not yet Christians, but many would be, is he's trying to tell the people of Israel how things are going to be different. That it used to be this way, now it's going to be this way. He's preparing them for the rest of the message. Because as Jesus moves along this journey towards the cross, he's going to get more and more precise about what it means to follow him and who they are following. Okay? So it's, he's preparing the way for all of this is impossible unless something happens. What's the something? He's got to go to the cross. He's got to die a sinner's death on their behalf. He's got to raise again from the dead, and they will have to place their faith in him. Okay, so he's setting the stage for all that's going to happen. He's he's talking about the future, but that's not all he's talking about. Even though it's pre-cross, pre-resurrection, I think he's, he's specifically addressing, yes, the four disciples, but yes, also the rest of the people in this crowd. Because he wants them to hear and understand. He even wants the religious leaders to hear and understand that it's no longer going to be the way you think it's always been. There's a different means of salvation than what you believe. Even though he hasn't died, even though he hasn't gone to the cross, he's teaching them something totally radical. And it's not, and this is really important, guys, it's not just another set of rules. And that's what a lot of people do with the, the Sermon on the Mount. It's just, well, here's a whole bunch of ways to live life. Good luck with that. I want to see you try it. I want to see you try to live this out without Christ, without the Holy Spirit, without the Word of God and the help of the body of Christ. It is impossible. And that's the whole point. You can't do it. It'll never happen. It's very much in the same way When God gave the law to the people of Israel, and he said, these are my commandments, obey them, knowing full well, according to Paul, that they never could pull it off. It was impossible. And the law of Moses was setting up the need for what? The Messiah. Well, Jesus is going to say even more. It's not just the Old Testament law. It's a whole new way of life that will be the kingdom life expected by God the Father, and it will only come through Jesus Christ the Son. So it's not a set of rules. Everything he teaches in here is impossible. Even these nine Beatitudes, bless this, blessed that, bless, it's all impossible. And that's the whole point. Because he's describing a new kind of life. And if you hear nothing else tonight, here's what I want you to hear. You guys, if you're in Christ, you've been called to a new kind of life. And as I've studied this passage, here's what's impacted me. For far too much of my life, I've not been living the kingdom life. And the kingdom life is not you going to church, you coming to a Bible study, you being in a small group, you going to church and worshiping and giving your tithe. That is not the kingdom life. Those are aspects of the kingdom life. But the kingdom life is really something about your heart. It's about a radical change to the way you live. And you know this as well as I know this. There are hundreds, if not thousands of people in this city every Sunday who go to church, who tithe, who give, who do all the right things, read their Bible, and they are not even in the kingdom. See, we even called to something very radical. And what he's going to do in these verses is describe for us the kingdom life, the kingdom of God. What does it mean to be a member of the kingdom of God, a citizen of the kingdom of God? And again, if you're a first century Jew sitting in that audience, what do you think about yourself already? I'm already in the kingdom of God. I'm a Jew. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I've got a pass. I've got a, pass. I got a token. I've got the golden ticket. I'm already in. And Jesus is going to say, no, you're not. No, you're not, because it's going to require something else. It's going to require heart transformation, not a change in the way you behave. And yet what so many of us believe as Christians is, if I could just change my behavior, if I could just do a portion of what he says in this sermon, I'd be, I'd be okay, and God would love me, and I'd probably get to heaven. And, and Jesus is saying, no, that's, you don't understand. That's not how it works. That's not what I've come to do. So nine times in these opening verses, he uses this word blessed. And it's going to be really important for us to understand what this word means, because if you don't understand this word, you will never understand these beatitudes. And the Greek word is makarios. Now, you've probably heard this word translated as happy. You know, happy are the meek. And, and that, that's not a wrong definition for many years of my life. That was my preferred definition for blessed because I want to be happy. Who doesn't want to be happy? But it doesn't fit the context. In other words, Jesus didn't come talking about your happiness. And so when he says this word blessed, it can be translated happy. But I think we do it a disservice if we do that and we minimalize it and we emasculate it because happy is just kind of flighty. You know, it's just one day I'm happy, one day I'm not. Ice cream makes me happy. You know, broccoli doesn't. You know, that's not what this word is. He's not talking about happiness. It really would be better translated to be approved or to find approval. Now, I want you to think about that. Think about how that changes what these things mean. Approved are the meek. Approved are the merciful. Approved are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. See, approval, the approval of God is what every Israelite wanted. It's the reason they tried to keep the law. They didn't want to keep the law. They were adverse to keeping the law. Why would they even try to keep the law? Because they so desperately wanted God to approve of them. Because blessing meant approval. Cursing meant disapproval. And so this idea of approval is huge to understanding what we're talking about here. They're not steps to happiness. In other words, I can't take these and just go, well, if I do this, I'll be happy. If I do this, I'll be happy. But no, that's not what this is about. It's, it's not about me, it's about him. Does he approve of me? Am I approved by God? Am I accepted by God? And again, all from the day that the... the The law had been given what the Israelites, every living, breathing Israelite, wanted to be approved by God. And the Jews standing in the audience that day when he spoke this message, all wanted to be approved by God and never knew if they were fully approved by God. Why? Because they couldn't keep the law in its entirety. So approval is huge. So these Beatitudes are really promises. They're promises about those Who have been approved by God. So what you have to do when you read these (coughs) is we tend to read them and say, I'm blessed if I do. I'm approved if I do. That's not how these should be read. It's the approved do these things. I am approved by God. Therefore, I do these things. I am approved by God, therefore I am meek. I am approved by God, therefore I am persecuted. Why? Because I've been approved by God, and I'm going to be persecuted just like His Son was persecuted. I'm approved by God, therefore I hunger and thirst for righteousness which is of God. So you got to get the cart before the the, the horse before the cart. It's not about works, and that's what many people have turned this into. It's just another form of works and legalism. If I do this, if I am meek, I will be approved by God. No, no, no. It's the approved by God who are meek. And see, Jesus is, is really flipping the coin over and saying, guys, you've had it wrong. You've been staring at the wrong side of the coin the whole time. I have come to bring you righteousness. Rightness with God, approval by God, but it's going to come through me, not through the law. So all of these things are basically descriptions. They're descriptions of you. Or let me put it another way. They're descriptions of who you should be, what you should look like. So they're not a list of things to do. They're a list of things that illustrate how you should behave as a, as a kingdom citizen, a son of God. And again, that's going to change the way we look at these. So when you see the poor in spirit, that's a description of a believer. Those who mourn, that's a description of a believer. And we're going to unpack these in just a second to help you understand why they apply to us. And they really didn't apply to these people in the crowd because they couldn't pull it off in their own strength any more than they could keep the law of Moses. Moses. And so Jesus is setting them up for what he's about to present. And that's what makes this sermon so incredibly revolutionary and radical. And why it should still be radical today is that you look at this and go, well, I can't do this. I don't know the last time I was meek. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. I don't know the last time I really hungered and thirsted for righteousness, but see, Jesus, again, is, is, is coming to present something totally new. This is his first major message, and he's basically telling them, you know, it's no longer about obedience and law-keeping, which is how it had been for centuries. And if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 30, I would encourage you sometime this week, read all of Deuteronomy chapter 30 to get an idea. Again, if you're a first-century Jew, you should know Deuteronomy 30 because this is your life. And I'm only going to read a few verses, but this was the life they lived under. Now listen, today I'm giving you a choice between life and death. Anybody want to take that choice? Here's your choice, life or death, you pick. Well, I know what I'm picking. Well, he goes on, between prosperity and disaster. I'm taking prosperity. He can have the disaster. But he goes on. For I command you, God says, this day to love the Lord your God and to keep his commands, decrees, and regulations by walking in his ways. Okay? If you do this, you will live and multiply. And then what does it say? And the Lord will bless you. See how it's reversed? If you do, you'll be approved by God. That was the mantra they lived under for centuries. And here comes Jesus, and he says, if you're approved by God, you will. You will keep my commandments. Remember Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. How do we do that? Because we've been approved by God. We've placed our faith in Christ. We now have a new capacity. We have the Holy Spirit living within us. This is what makes it all so radical. And a big part of Jesus' message Remember what John the Baptist said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus picked it up and said, repent for the kingdom of, is at hand. What does that word repent mean? Well, it's metaneo and, and it literally means to change your mind. Now, I grew up with the definition, it's an about face, right? I grew up Southern Baptist and that's, you know, you're going to give your life to Christ. So you're walking one way and you just suddenly stop and go, no, I'm turning around. I'm walking the other way. It's, it's a behavior change. In other words, I'm going one direction, I'm going to go another direction. But the word literally means to change your mind. What do you have to do? If you're walking one direction and you're going to go another way, what do you have to do first before that happens? you got to change your mind. you got to decide that this is the wrong way and this is the right way. So repentance in Jesus' mind as he's speaking this is not just you changing your behavior. It's you changing your mind about Everything. Now, remember, he's primarily preaching to Jews early on in his ministry, and so he's basically telling Jews, you got to repent. Repent of what? Everything. And not just sin. See, we tie repentance to sin. i got to repent of all my sins. Well, again, good luck with that. It's really a repentance from everything you think you know about God. You know, it's typically referred to as an amending of your abhorrence to sin, That I'm going to change my mind about sin. Because even Paul tells us that there was a point in time in every one of our lives before coming to Christ when we loved sin. And we preferred sin. And we couldn't do anything but sin. We had some good days, but most of the days weren't that great. Most of our decisions were tainted by sin. And then we were approved by God. We came to faith in Christ. And then we repented. We changed our mind about sin. I don't want to sin anymore. Most of us grieve over sin. Matter of fact, I get guys who come into my office on a pretty regular basis and they're struggling with their salvation and they tell me, I don't know if I'm a believer. Why? Well, I just keep sinning. (laughs) Well, yeah. So do I. Yeah, but I I just, I keep doing this one sin. I just keep doing it. I I said, does it bother you? Well, yeah, it bothers me. Good. You're a Christian. Because if it didn't bother you, you just keep doing it with no regret. Now, if you continue to live this way, and you continue for years to do that same sin, and you just have what Paul calls worldly grief, with no change in your behavior, in other words, you're repenting in your mind, but you're not repenting in your body, then there's something wrong with you, and you may not be a believer. But oftentimes, it's just we grieve, and we we grieve over it, and that's a sign that the Holy Spirit lives within us. That we want to change. We want to walk a new way. We want to go a different direction. So repentance is about a change of mindset. And that's exactly what he's calling these people to. Is Guys, I want you to change everything you believe about these things. The kingdom of God. Because as Jews, they had a view of the kingdom of God. They were in it. They were part of it. It was Israel. Israel was the kingdom of God. And all they really needed now was a king an earthly king. They were going to have to change everything they knew about salvation. And that's a big part of what he's talking about in this entire passage, is how do you get saved? How do you get right with God? How do you get approved by God? Well, it's the law. You've got to keep the law. No, 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 no. You're going to have to change your mind about that. You're going to have to do an about face, because it ain't the way you think it is. They're going to have to change their ideas about justification. How do I get right? Again, how do I get approved? And then finally, the Messiah. What do we all know about the Jews at this point in time in their history? They were expecting Messiah. They wanted a Messiah. But what kind of ma- a Messiah? A Messiah on a horse with an army like David. And so they're going to have to change their mind. And they're going to have to change their mind about God. You are like, well, why, would I, why would the Jew change their mind about God? Because their view of God was totally warped. Their God was a distant God. Their God was a judgmental God. Their God was an angry God who could never be appeased. And they would say he's loving and kind and merciful, but their experience was, I can't ever make him happy. And that's not the kind of God we worship. And Jesus comes to say, it isn't what you think it is. It's different. And so what we want to do is look real quickly at these characteristics of kingdom life that he's unpacked. First one is poverty of spirit. This is probably the least attractive to any guy in the room because it's got the word what? Poverty in it. And I'm going to tell you, if, if you're a first century Jew and you hear, hear him talk, blessed are the poor in spirit, as soon as they heard the word poor, they checked out. They didn't hear the spirit part because they were already poor and they didn't want to be poor. And in the Jewish mindset, to be poor was to be cursed by God, and to be rich was to be blessed by God. See, they had a warped view. And so when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he's talking about a different kind of poverty than financial poverty. And it, it applied to every person in the audience, from the richest to the poorest, from the smartest to the dumbest, from the most religious to the most pagan. But it's impossible For them to have this kind of poverty. Because it's a personal acknowledgement. Of your own spiritual bankruptcy. See what happens. When you come to faith in Christ. Is someone tells you about Christ. You hear about his gift. And you realize that he died on the cross. For what? Your sins. And what that creates in you. Is a spiritual poverty. And you realize I'm a sinner, and I can't save myself. And therefore, I'm going to turn to him to save me and do for me what I can't do for myself. He's going to pay my debt that I couldn't pay. It's an attitude of spiritual poverty. But here's the deal, guys. It doesn't just stop at salvation. It carries through your life. See, you as a Christian today should have an attitude of a poverty of spirit that you realize your capacity for sin. You realize that without Jesus Christ, you are spiritually bankrupt. And if left to your own devices, you know exactly what you would do. You know why I get in the Word every morning? It's not so I can think that I'm smart. It's because I know if I don't, I will make really bad decisions. If I don't stay in association with other believers, I will make bad decisions. If I don't lean on the Holy Spirit, if I don't trust in God, I will make bad decisions. So this idea of poverty of spirit is constant for the believer. It's a consci- conscious awareness of what? You're unworth before God. Now, here's what I'm not telling you. I don't want you to walk around like I'm a worm. I'm just a loser. I'm worthless. I have no value. No, That's what the enemy wants you to believe. But I do want you to believe that, yes, you're a son of God, but except for Jesus Christ's death on the cross and the grace and mercy of God the Father, you would be worthless. You would have no value in and of yourself. But because of Jesus, you do. And see, that attitude is what should permeate our lives, is this realization that I need God every day of my life. Without God, I make bad decisions. Without God, I'm a lousy husband and a lousy father. Without God, I am not the man I'm supposed to be, and I will not live the kingdom life. So poverty of spirit is for you and me, all throughout our lives as believers. And I love what Jesus said to the Pharisees. Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Because what do the Pharisees think about themselves? We're not spiritually impoverished. We got it all together. We're, We're rich. We're spiritual rock stars. And John says, if we claim we have no sin like the Pharisees, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. You have sin. You are a sinner. You are prone to sin, and you need to have a poverty of spirit that without God, you would fall right back into your old habits. You would. But with God and with Christ and with the Holy Spirit, you can live differently. How about mournfulness? Blessed are the mournful. Blessed are those who mourn. What is it talking about? He's talking about a personal grief over your personal sin. You should grieve over your sin as a believer. And it's the emotional counterpart of this idea of poverty of spirit. If you realize that I'm a sinner, except by the grace of God and Jesus Christ's blood on the cross, then when you sin, it should bother you and you should mourn over it. What really gets to me is how many of us never mourn over our sin. We've grown used to it. Now, we may say, God, I'm sorry I did that. I'm sorry I said that. I'm sorry I looked at that. and and we just kind of go on. But we don't mourn over it. We aren't burdened by it. You know, Paul says it's godly grief that we should seek. Godly grief produces a repentance that that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. In other words, if you've got godly grief that you're really repentant and sorrowful, it will move you in the right direction. But for too many believers today, we don't know what it means to grieve over our sin. It doesn't really bother us. And we live with this idea that, well, God saved me. He's died, his son died for me. And all I got to do is I say I'm sorry and he forgives me and I just move on. What if your kids treated you like that? What if your kid wrecked your car? Your 16 year old son wrecked your car, walked in and said, hey, Dad, uh, there's a problem with the car. You might want to go check it out. I'm leaving. What do you mean there's a problem with the car? Yeah, it's out, you know, yeah, it's on a tow truck, it's out front. And you walk out there and you look at it and it's totally demolished and you walk back in and go, did you do that? Yeah, yeah, take care of it because I need it next week. You would smack him down to, you know, where he was no taller than two inches because there's no grief, there's no sorrow, there's no repentance. There's, it's just, yeah, you're my dad, you're going to, you got to fix it, you're the one with the insurance can I use the other car? See, that's what we do to God. We treat him like this parent that we don't respect, but know we're to have mournfulness over our sin. How about meekness? Nobody likes to be meek, right? The Jews most certainly didn't like to be meek. They didn't like to be poor. They didn't like to uh, mourn because it was associated with negative things like death. They didn't like to be meek because meekness in their mind was weakness. But meekness is the controlled desire to see others' interests advanced ahead of your own. Now think about that. Meekness is not weakness, because we know Jesus was meek, and Jesus was anything but weak. <clears throat> meekness is really power under control. The best example I can think to illustrate meekness is we, we live next door to a riding school, and there's 25 horses, and my kids all grew up riding on this lady's horses. And my youngest daughter was a wrangler in this this school, and she got to ride anytime she wanted. But my youngest daughter probably weighs 90 pounds, 100 pounds. And every time I saw her get on one of these horses, it would just send like chills up my spine. Like, there's no way you're going to control that horse. And here's the reality. My daughter thought she was always controlling the horse, but the horse was letting her control it. That horse could have done anything with her anytime it wanted to. It could run away from her. It could buck her. It could stomp on her. It could do whatever. It was power under control. It was meekness. This idea of controlled desire to see others' interests advance ahead of your own. Go ahead. Get on my back. Go ahead. Kick me in the side. Yeah, I'll take you across the park. Yeah, I'll ride around again. Come on. We'll do it. I'd like to eat that grass, but you know what? You want me to? Okay, I'll do that. That's what he's talking about. And it has to do with your relationship with God, meekness towards God, but also meekness towards other men. Willingly sacrificing and living selflessly. Now that is impossible without Christ. Try it. Try it tomorrow. Just do it in the flesh. Just get up and go, I'm going to be meek today. It won't last 30 minutes. Because when your wife wakes up, when your kids wake up, Your meekness is out the window. I'm not doing that for you. I'm not going to serve you. Make my breakfast. This this is huge. It's the opposite of self-assertiveness, that I want it my way. i got to get my rights. It's my interest that I care about. No, meekness is it's all about you. I have a hard time just saying that. It's all about you. I don't want it to be about you. I want it to be about me. And yet, I'm called to be meek. You're called to be meek. And then I'm called to have a spiritual hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. Godliness. The things of God. It's an insatiable desire for conformity to God's will. When's the last time you had that? When's the last time you woke up in the morning and, been, man, I cannot wait to get in the scriptures? You know, if you're like me, most of those mornings you wake up and go, oh, Golly. I don't don't even know where to start. Oh, I got to get to work. And see, it's not even just talking about getting in the Bible. It's, It's a spiritual hunger and thirst. It's an insatiable desire for what? Righteousness. Not the Bible. Righteousness, godliness, holiness. And righteousness is the objective of our life. Do you live that way? See, he's describing you. He's saying this should be the picture of someone approved by God. And the analogy I like to use is one of food. When's the last time you were starving? And you just, i got to have something to eat. Or you were really thirsty, and you've been working in the yard, and you've just got to have something wet. And, and, and what do you not think about? Man, if I could just have something healthy. Man, if I could have some Broccoli. Man, if i got asparagus, man, I, I'm so, I'm, i got to have some, no, you want a steak. You want, you want something substantial. You could care less about healthiness. You just want that thing. And that's really what he's talking about. It's that kind of desire. It's, I want righteousness, like I want a good meal or a good drink of water when I'm thirsty. I want that, and I'm obsessed, obsessed with it. It's the desire to live according to God's will. Do you hunger and thirst for that? See, what he's telling you is that those who are approved by God, who come to faith in Jesus Christ, will have that desire. There's not anybody in the crowd that day who had that desire. Not even the four disciples. They didn't hunger and thirst after righteousness. They aren't going to thirst after power. Because we know later on, almost two and a half years into the ministry of Jesus... And he's already talking about going to the cross. They're going, hey, when you start up your kingdom, can we sit in your right and your left? They weren't thinking about righteousness. They were thinking about power. They were thinking about egos. Hunger for thirst, or uh, spiritual hunger and thirst for righteousness is to long for life on God's terms. When's the last time you've had that in your life? How about mercy? I hate mercy. No, I love mercy. I love to receive mercy. I just don't like to mete it out. I'm not a merciful person. Um, my kids will be the first to tell you. But mercy that he's talking about is the gracious and generous response to the mercy of God. When you get mercy from God, what should you want to do with that mercy? Hoard it or give it? You should want to give it. You should want to extend mercy to those around you because you've received mercy. Now, here's the thing about mercy. Did you deserve mercy from God? No. Then why in the world are you sitting there going, I'm going to show that jerk mercy? He doesn't deserve mercy. He's a jackass. I hate that guy. And I have every right to hate that guy. Well, so did God with you. And yet God showed you mercy. And so those who have been approved by God and received the mercy of God through the, birth, through the death of Jesus Christ are willing to extend mercy to others. Because guess what? We're all in the same boat. And he's not teaching you that you don't get mercy, mercy from God until you extend it. See, that's That's backwards. It's those who have received it are willing to share it with others because guess what? I didn't deserve it, so I'll share it with you. It's a natural response. I'm undeserving. Well, guess what? So is everybody around me, my wife, my kids, my coworkers, my neighbors, the guy who cuts me off on the highway. I'll show him mercy. Why not? Because that's the way a people approved of God live. Wholeness means purity of heart. Loving God by giving God every area of your life. This is probably the hardest one for every guy in the room. See, we read purity of heart, blessed are the pure of heart, and we think, oh, gosh, i got to live a perfect life. i got to have this pure heart. That's not what it means. It's not obeying a bunch of rules. It's not living up to a set of standards. It's about behavior from the inside out. And the scriptures often use the word blameless. Remember, uh, God said to uh, Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. And I read that passage, and I always panic, and I go, oh, my gosh i got to walk before God and be perfect. That's not what the word means. It has to do with wholeness. It has to do with completeness. It has to do with integrity. So in other words, you're to live your life with purity of heart. Every area of your life is lived before God as if he's watching because guess what? He is. And it's a wholehearted seeking after God. Purity of heart. Wholeness of heart. I want the things of God. He told the people of Israel through the prophet Jeremiah, if you look for me wholeheartedly, completely, with your whole heart, with your whole being, guess what? You'll find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord. So again, this is a description of you and I as believers, or it should be. Then we move on to peacemaking. It's the desiring of reconciliation between God and man more than revenge or retribution. See, again, I think of Jesus saying this in front of these people. Where are these people living? In Jerusalem. Who is in control of Jerusalem? Rome. What did they think about Rome? I hate them. What did they want done to Rome? They wanted them all killed. Why were they looking for a Messiah? Because he's the one that was going to pull it off. They did not want peace with Rome. They didn't even want peace with their neighbors. They... they had a, a hatred even for their own. They hated the Samaritans. They hated the Assyrians. <coughs> they hated everybody. So Jesus says, no, you've got to be a peacemaker. And I know this about many of you in the room without naming anybody, but you hate peacemaking too. You'd rather hate somebody than make peace with them. You'd rather spite somebody. But see, we've been called to something different. We should want what God wants. What does God want? Well, it's pretty clear that God wants peace with mankind, because why did he send his son? That we might be made right with him. So what does God want? God wants reconciliation. He wants peace with men, but he also wants men to have peace with one another. And what is the greatest need we have in this world today? Peace. Peace between men, peace between women. And he goes on and says, we prove that we're the sons of God by what? By the fact that we have his desire for reconciliation. See, one of the things I hate about the church today and hate about us in the church today is that we are so dadgum hateful. And you know why people are not attracted to the church is because we are hateful people. And we hate the Muslims and we hate gays and we hate transgenders and we hate and we hate and we hate and we have no desire for reconciliation because it's easier to hate. And yet, what does he say? If you are approved by God, you will be a peacemaker. And that's how people will know that you're my son. Because of peacemaking. What did Paul tell us in 2 Corinthians? For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. But guess what? You and I spend so much of our time saying, you know what? I'm going to count every one of that guy's sins against him. Because he deserves it. And we keep a list, and we count it twice, and we, we have so much against so many people, and yet God sent his son to die for the world. And we're to want what God wants, reconciliation. And then he wraps up these things with the most famous one, the most despised one. You're going to be hated by the world. You will suffer. You will be ridiculed, persecuted. But Why? You'll be persecuted, reviled, and slandered all for the sake of Christ, not for your stupidity, not for your sinfulness. I get persecuted sometimes just because I'm an idiot. It has nothing to do with Jesus Christ and my faith in Jesus Christ. But he's saying, if you are approved by God, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, and he's trying to tell these people that that day is coming for many of you, and when it does, you will be persecuted, you will be reviled, keep your eye on the future. That's what it means, having a future focus that sees us through present suffering. See, we ought to be able to handle the tough days of this world because we know that something better is coming. And that's why Jesus told his disciples later on, the world hates you. Remember that it hated me first. You will be hated, guys. Now, sometimes we aren't because we spend so much time trying to be loved by the world. But Jesus says, if you're approved by me, you will be hated. And here's the end of this whole thing. He calls them to, here's here's what it looks like in real life, be salt and light. You're very familiar with these passages, so I'm not going to read them, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on them, because you know that you've been called to be different. You've been called to be a change maker, a change agent, a reconciliator in this world. You're called to be salt and light, and Jesus is telling these people, That those who are approved by God, those who will come to faith in Jesus Christ, once he's died, once he's buried and resurrected, they will become salt and light. That will be their purpose for living. That's your purpose for living. And he's speaking prophetically about all who will come to faith. He's talking about the disciples, but I think he's talking about other people in that crowd who will come to faith in Jesus Christ post-resurrection at Pentecost and later on. Many Jews did come to faith in Christ. But he's telling me, this is my purpose. This is your purpose. We exist to influence the world for the kingdom. Now stop and think about that, guys. When's the last time you influenced the world for the kingdom? You may be really good at what you do, and you may make a lot of money, and you may help your company make a lot of money, but when's the last time you influenced and impacted the world for the kingdom? Because that's why you exist. That's why you're here. And I put this in your notes, and I'm not going to go over it tonight. You can look at it on your own. But I just took the salt and the light, and I compared them to the earth and the world. One represents the church. One represents the world. And if, if we don't start doing our job, guys, it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. And I'm not a proponent that we're going to revolutionize the world, and we're going to turn the world up in its ears, and we're going to create revival across the world. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think it's impossible. I just don't think it's going to happen. But I do think we can begin to make a change in the people around us and impact the world. So spend some time looking at that. So I'll wrap it up with this. Everything Jesus said was not what they expected to hear. Everything Jesus has said so far is not what you expected to hear. If you put all your, what you think you know about the Sermon on the Mount on the back burner, if you just listen to it for the first time, because he's calling you to a revolutionary life. He's calling you to a radical life. He's calling you to something that many of us have never lived. It's, it's dangerous. It's not for wimps. It's not for weasels. It's for people who are willing to step out and say, you know what? I'll do it. I'm going to live differently. I'm going to cl- live according to the way I've been called because I have the power to do it. I have the Holy Spirit. I have the Word of God to guide and direct me, and I have the body of Christ to assist me. You're not in this alone. But here's the deal. He's just getting started. We've just covered the first few verses, and he's going to just keep this ball rolling, and these people's heads are going to spin. You can read this passage five through seven, in probably about seven minutes. It wasn't a long message. But you know what? It's so jam-packed. I think their heads were spinning by the time he was done. If you don't think it's hard... Maybe you don't understand what you've been called to do. You've been called to something really great. So here's what I want you to do around your tables. If you're new to Band of Brothers and you've not ever participated, this is when you get to talk around your tables. If you get up and try to leave, I will personally tackle you. Okay? Because this is the most valuable time, I think, of the the evening. I've given you three questions. We don't have table shepherds like we normally do, so somebody's got to gut it up. Somebody's gotta be the leader, so somebody be bold. Do you feel like the average Christian lives what we would describe as a radical life, if not why? Notice I didn't say, do you live that way? This way you can talk in the third person. You can talk about the guy next to you. What did you hear today that struck a chord with you and makes you question the radical nature of your own faith or maybe the lack of a radical nature to your own faith? And finally, discuss whether your life is salt and light where you are. In your community, in your home, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, let me pray for you, and then you guys spend some time with this, and then we'll see you next week. Father, thank you for these men. I pray that you would take this time around the tables, that guys would open up, that they would share. The Father, we take all the pretense, all the posturing, and that I got all the answers, and I know exactly what He's looking for, and that Father, we would just admit that we don't know and that we don't live like you've called us to live. Our lives are not radical like they should be and that we are not living as part of a revolution like you've called us to. Father, we are agents of change. We are your emissaries on this earth. We are members of the kingdom of God and we should live like it. We have been approved by God and we don't have to do anything to earn your favor. But we do need to live like who we are sons of God. So Father, we give you this time and we thank you for the opportunity. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.